The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What we did and what I do when I work with other companies is basically explain that a brand is not a logo. A brand is not a tagline, although you need those. Uh, but what a brand is, is your DNA, consistently and persistently put forward. And so what we did and what we tried to do uh, with anybody I work with on this is figure out the three words that cut across everything you do. Welcome to the Mentor TV podcast and stay curious with Patricia Falco-Becali. Welcome back to another edition of COVID-19 from Crisis to Creation here on Mentory TV. I'm Patricia Falco-Beccali, your host. And yes, I know we talked about it before. The COVID-19 pandemic has definitely highlighted quite a few issues, lingering issues, global lingering issues for quite some time, be it the climate change issue or also inequality. But I detected a couple of diverging trends really gaining momentum in 2020. So on one side, you have the global obesity pandemic really speeding up momentum in 2020. And on the, on the other side, you have the sports, fitness and fit tech industry absolutely booming. I mean, what is going on? Let me give you a couple of numbers. First of all, the Global Wellness Institute says the global physical activity economy accounts for about 830 billion US dollars in value to increase to over 1 trillion by 2023. At the same time, you have the WHO saying that obesity and overweight rates are going to increase by 9% in 2020 compared to 2019. Doesn't sound much to you, but if you think that about 72% of all women globally and 83% of all men globally are going to be either overweight or obese, having a BMI index of 25 or above, that is a lot. So what is going on? Um, I mean, is it all the comfort eating during COVID-19 lockdowns? Uh, is it the lack of movement? I think it's a bit of a you know, combination of both. And this is why I thought, why not talk to you know, a man that knows the fitness and apparel industry more than anybody else? He built the iconic The North Face brand. Hub Club is joining us here on Mentory TV. Hub, I'm absolutely stoked to have you here on the show. Patricia, it's nice to be here. <laughs> what a privilege. Well, let's get straight into it, um, Hub. I mean, in building The North Face. For me, you are not only an icon in that particular sector, but for me, you are a person that really for the first time looked at sports and sports apparel in a different way. 
trying to really integrate uh, potential technologies or improvements from different sectors. What was the vision you had in your mind when you, you, know, you bought those couple of shops back, back in 1968? There really were two, two intersecting visions that I had. The, the first one was from readings and from my own personal involvement in the outdoors. I uh, hung on to something that uh, Thoreau once wrote, which he said, in wilderness is the preservation of the earth. A number of other people have quoted that, but I, I really found that because when I was being raised in Spokane, Washington, it was an area that everything around it was lakes and trees and mountains. And so that's what I did all the time. And I felt really rejuvenated and uh, felt that when I went out there, it was good. The second thing that intersected that, it was a time, it was 1968 when we started things, and there was as much turmoil as you see now in the streets. There was rioting going on, anti-Vietnam War, and a variety of things that uh, basically were not very healthy. And it seemed to me that if we could send people deep into the wilderness where I'd gone, that, uh, that they would come back sort of spiritually renewed and be able to face uh, these things with, with a better focus and a better approach. Th the idea was then coupled with the fact that I always believed in disruption. And I thought if you could disrupt an industry, then you'd have a business opportunity. So what I looked for was how do you disrupt the camping business, which is where people go a couple hundred feet into the wilderness and, and not very far. And I wanted them to go miles into the wilderness. So what I did was initially find materials from the Vietnam War that were surplus. I took aircraft aluminum and made tent poles and pack frames, uh, took parachute cloth and made sleeping bags and tents and some funky clothing. Of course, now the company is so known for clothing, that seems crazy, but it was the case. And in doing that, suddenly people were going miles into the wilderness. Women joined the activity because it wasn't a beast of burden act any longer. So it was trying to marry a philosophical thing of really changing the world and changing it for the better and believing that an individual could do that. And knowing that the wilderness was a place where people were spiritually renewed, where they would be able to deal with the complexities of, of the urban society. Yeah, unplug them. I like the idea. Let, let's get them out of the chaos they're in, the crisis they're in. And yeah, you're right, end of 60s and 70s, also with the oil crisis then at the beginning of the 70s, was not an easy time, economically speaking, a lot of tension. But you had to get them unplugged for a long time. And it seems that whatever was on offer in terms of apparel and camping apparel was just not giving that kind of longevity where uh, you didn't have, you know, impermeability and, uh, and you know, just a, a good feeling for a longer time out there in the wilderness. And this is what you introduced. What made you think of, okay, let's try to see what the military has to offer in order to implement that into a totally different sector? Well, the idea was not necessarily look at the military. The idea was look for something that could change the, the premise. And the basic premise that I had was the reason people didn't go deep into the wilderness is carrying all of the equipment they had was very, very heavy. And so if you could lighten that load, you would do that. And uh, light materials were being there. The, there were people running around trying to sell uh, over capacity that had been produced for the war that was being dialed back. And so that came across. I talked with universities about ideas they had and looked at some of them, but they were pretty exotic and not really applicable. And they also were ones that might take a long time to develop where right in my hands were some of these materials that people are trying to figure out what to do with. 
Yeah. You know, we have a company here in Switzerland. You might know the brand. Help. It's called Freitag. Uh, in English, it means um, Friday. And what they did was they recycled, you know, the plastic material that you have covering the load of lorries. And they took that and, and they made bags, um, you know, just, you know, over crossover bags um, for, for whatever, for, for bikes, for just having it for your, for your documents. And they had an amazing success because it came with different colors, but more importantly, it came with, okay, let's get into the circular economy. Again, taking something and trying to, you know, create a brand, a long lasting brand. They have been, you know, going around for quite some time and successfully so. But how, let's, let's stay a little bit more with the technology sector, because I do know that fit tech is something that's already been quite a bit of a booming industry even before 2000, uh, uh, 2020. So 2019, I think it's almost $4 billion worth in the US alone. What is, you know, what does really technology bring to the sports and apparel sector apart from the materials? What does it, why does it potentially make people move more or adapt more to a healthier lifestyle? First of all, you have to look at the what's going to disrupt society. It's the megatrends that exist out there. And there are really three that are, are going to, if they have not already disrupted any industry, they will. One is digitization. Another one is democratization. Another one is globalization. And the reality is, you know, wearable technology, IoT, all of that relies on digitization, the ability to put that information together. And what is really unique is that almost all of us now have a supercomputer in our hand or in our pocket in, in the way of a phone. There's more computing capacity there than went on the first spaceship to the moon. And as a result of it, suddenly all of the information that you can take from your body or from society around you can be monitored by your phone. This is a tool there that, that didn't exist 20 years ago and is something that you can use to use sensors on your body. You can uh, be able to do that. You know how far you walked. It can automatically do that. It gives you feedback that you wouldn't get anywhere else. So what it's doing is effectively uh, disrupting the fitness industry where before people said, well, I need to go out walking or I need to go out hiking or I need to go uh, work out. Uh, they were working against an ill-defined goal. And one of the easiest ways to work out, and companies like Peloton have, have seen that, is effectively to measure yourself against something. But yeah. not just doing it in a gym. Doing it outside is what I advocate. And now that you have these tools, you can do that and you can feed back what is good for you, what's not good for you. And, and there's all sorts of developments going on. I work with a health and wellness company where I'm in a, on the board and the advisor. It's called Revive. And Revive does uh, drip therapy uh, for various outcomes, depending what you want, whether it has to do with, with uh, your health, your beauty, your physical fitness, whether it has to do with any of those. But they then expanded into DNA analysis because when you get into the DNA, everybody doesn't respond the same way to foods or pharma. And where it starts is the DNA. And again, you have to have all of this information provided that didn't exist before. So when you do DNA analysis, which at one point would cost a million dollars for an individual, and now it's, it's down to you know, uh, hundreds and 
900, 800, 700, it'd probably be 100 within a, a couple of years for people to have that analysis. Now you know which foods you can put in your body. So one thing that they do is do an analysis and then give you an output that tells you which things work for you. And we have, if you think about it, we've talked about, well, you should do the Mediterranean diet. Or yeah. the Mediterranean diet doesn't work for everybody. Similarly, we talk about the French paradox, where how can the French you know, eat such rich foods with all the butter and whatever? Well, the reason is it relates to their DNA that came from that area. So you know, what I see is that all of this information is now at hand, and you can process it and monitor it in a variety of ways, depending on the outcome that you're looking for. But that's amazing. I mean, I did a DNA test like that as well to just know, am I a carb burner or do I go more towards fat? Do I overreact to proteins? It was a very interesting analysis. And a lot of people that really try to find out what's actually going to happen in my body if I expose myself to this, that or the other is extremely important to have that data point, of course, to really not go against mountains. They say, I'm living such a healthy lifestyle, but it ain't right for you. It ain't right for your DNA. And I do uh, definitely see that this kind of evolution is going to continue. Now, in terms of outdoor movement, how do you how do you actually or can one with that company you are you are on the board of, can one see what outdoor exposure or the unplugging really does to you, also on a DNA level, or is it too far fetched? It's more on measurement of what you're doing right now, uh, but also it's a measurement of what foods you take in because you're part of an ecosystem. And it's, it's how active you are. I mean, I, I'm surprised when people say, well, you know, I don't understand how I'm gaining so much weight or, yep. or not. It, it, it's a balance, you know, carbs in and carbs out and the activity that you have and, and what your diet is. If your diet is, is heavy on protein or heavy on, on carbs or heavy on something, it's going to give you a, a different output. And so you need that information. Now, what I found is that there's no measurement there of the rejuvenation, which I talked about, that you get from being in the wilderness. And I think that needs to go with it. And coming back to your original point that you're making, why is so much obesity out there? I would argue some of it is because of the lockdown and people can't be as active. But the other statistics show that people are getting much more active. The bike industry is remarkable right now. The walking industry, I'm not talking about maybe huge uh, expeditions, but I'm talking about more people walking. If you wanted to measure it, look at footwear and how that's selling. And so what you're seeing there, but I think part of the reason for the gain in, in weight, the obesity is coming, is the mental uh, burden that people have at a time like this. The uncertainty of what's going on in society, and it's it's exacerbated by politics and whatever, which are also pretty uncertain right now. But it's basically, we don't know how long we're going to be locked down. We don't know when we're going to see our friends or our family. We don't know what the answer is to those things. And a response to that is oftentimes overeating uh, because people use that as a response. Yeah, absolutely. And if you if you close the circle on what you're mentioning, and I think it is so key, it really is the stress. And we all know that when you're stressed, you release a hormone called cortisol. And if you have that in your blood, then insulin is being pumped also into the blood. And as far as I understand, with my limited knowledge about endocrinology, is exactly that whole
hormone that really then accumulates the fat and, and also at the same time instigates appetite. So it is a bit of a vicious circle, anxiety, fear, stress, cortisol, insulin, obesity. <laughs> you know, it all feeds in quite nicely. Um, Hub, let's, let's talk about the inventions we've seen so far and then we move on uh, our conversation. I think that what you are saying is, look, we've got data, we can measure ourselves, what we're actually doing and the impact, and we can measure ourselves uh, also in a context of other people. So are wearables the big disruptor here? Are the apps the big disruptor? And what is going to come next, do you think? Well, I think to date, it's been the apps that have really worked. They're more easily accessed. Uh, there's a good infrastructure to provide those out there. You look at uh, uh, Apple, how many, I don't know how many they have, tens of thousands, I presume. Uh, that That's more easily accessed. When you start talking about the actual monitors and systems and whatever, things are lagging there. And they're, they're lagging primarily, you, there's watches, and that's where you get Fitbit. A big effort there. Smartwatches. There's a company called Pebble that started a smartwatch long ago on with a Kickstarter campaign, and it was great. It was really exciting. Except, uh, and they raised I think a million dollars, but that wasn't enough to build an industry or whatever. And they they couldn't get things out on time, and so the smartwatch people picked up on it and they they developed that craze. But the that's only one way to measure. You can you can have clothing that measures. Every sort of thing. Now, why is that? Well, the very simple reason that it's been lagging is that there's two separate industries that have entirely different timelines and, and methods. One is the electronics industry, which is doing a lot of the sensing and measuring and, and, and data traffic. And on the other hand is the very dated apparel industry. And the apparel industry has a lot of manufacturing that doesn't want to change. A lot of it's been done in Asia uh, or in India, where they love long runs of products and they like what they've been doing. They make a lot of money doing it. And the idea of doing boutique production of something which is very limited or requiring bringing in electronics is very difficult. Electronics have a very short life cycle, updated on a regular basis. The apparel business has loved to work with like an 18-month development cycle and planning cycle, and uh, they don't want to change that. So if you start planning in 18 months, but the electronics are changing every three months, how, how do you mesh those two? And that's that's been one of the real challenges that comes out there. And so it's easy to do on a watch because that's something which is an independent unit that's just applied to the body and you can monitor some things. Certainly there's a lot of things you can measure on your wrist and whatever. But when you start getting closer to the body and heart rate and, and activity, uh, and you can also start measuring breath and what you're, you're breathing out will tell you exactly what's happening in your body. All of those things are just finding their way into that, uh, what I've described as the apparel business. Let me quickly interrupt the conversation to say thank you that you are here with me on the channel. If you do enjoy what I'm putting out, the in-depth kind of conversations, then why don't you subscribe and also hit the bell button so I can keep you informed with our newest releases. Thanks for that in advance. And let's get back to the conversation. You mentioned Peloton and I thought, you know, Peloton really kind of 
put uh, a notch up to what I would call um, questioning the business model of gyms. Because at the end of the day, you know, you do have the apparel which stands there, uh, perhaps okay for a year, two, or even five years, but you do have the platform where you can log into the stream, which can be updated on the three-month basis, as you, as you just mentioned, Hub. So I, I think there you might have the first time really good example where you have a bigger equipment, fitness equipment at home or wherever you happen to be, but you have a platform where you can link into, you know, a spinning class in Australia or in New Zealand or, you know, somewhere in Latin America. So that is perhaps one of those products that will have viability. But my question also looking at gyms and their business model, what are gyms going to look like in future, considering that perhaps, you know, social distancing or, you know, gyms in general, even with a vaccine, will be something that people might not necessarily go back to? What about the social aspect? Are gyms going to be just, you know, um, software as a service provider, like, uh, you know, an outlet for linking into the world and doing something, but everybody in their own little cubbyhole? How do you see it? Well, you know, it's a good question. I believe it's going to go back because I do believe we're social animals. And uh, the gym provides one place, a healthy place for people to get together. It's not a bar. You know, it's not uh, having 27 cups of coffee or whatever. It's, it's actually doing something worthwhile. So I think people will get back there. But until there is a way to safely do that with socially distancing and, and the vaccines and whatever, it's probably going to have a tough road to be able to come back. And of course, I, I still say you don't have to do that. I mean, you can go to the wilderness and you know, what's more open than the wilderness? And if you listen to what the CDC says, they said, be out in the open air and let, you know, be away from people. Well, that's, that's what you can do easily there. I, I, I would say that a, a, you know, if you look at Peloton, they were another one that digitization basically was disrupting. They were providing digitally something that had existed for a long time. And I think some of it relates to the issue that not many of us want to be marathon runners. Uh, <laughs> some people do, you know, and we're talking about 10,000, but I'm not talking about millions of people that want to do it. It's much easier to do a sprint. And measurements provide that sprint that you can look at. If you're saying, okay, I'm going to do something and it's going to be good for me nine months from now, you need steps along the way to give you feedback that you're making progress. And all of this information we're generating, uh, sometimes it's too much, but the information, if it's present, properly distilled, gives you that motivation because you can see the progress you're making. Yeah, and the outdoors, you mentioned it before, is not only good for the here and now, but there are many, many studies in terms of your cognitive ability in the long term and longevity in general, how important it is that how many imprints you get if you do not plug in something into your ears, but you really with nature and kind of feel the energy of the trees and, and you have the impressions of the birds and whatever kind of noise. But what you just said in terms of sprint and marathon, and now let's let's open a different chapter with you, Hap, and that is building a brand versus, you know, just selling products. What do you say is really the key to building a long-term standing ever, evergreen kind of brand like the North Face? Well, it's very simple. Uh, and of course, I help people brand, so I would say that. Uh, but what we did and what I do when I work with other companies is basically explain that a brand is not a logo. A brand is not a tagline, although you need those. Uh, but what a brand is, is your DNA. 
consistently and persistently put forward. And so what we did and what we tried to do uh, with anybody I work with on this is figure out the three words that cut across everything you do, not just your product or your service, that cut across you know, your finance, your supply chain, your customer interaction, your vendor interaction, whatever, and find those three words and then figure out how they apply to every touch point you have out there. And the three simple ones we had at North Face were disruption, which we talked about before in terms of product, but it was also in service and the way we went to market. Uh, quality, we had a lifetime warranty, which was quite different. I believe it was the most sustainable uh, time. The word wasn't used at that time. We called it environment. But I always have said the most environmental product is one that never ends up in the landfill. So even better than one made from, uh, from recycled. And then the third, if you use hyphens, it is a word, is triple bottom line which is an equal commitment to people, to profit, and planets. And those were our three words. And then every two years, we would have a meeting to talk about, are we living up to it? How can we change? Uh, and every new person coming into the company was doing that. Every company needs to assess what their DNA is and not deviate from that. And they have to hold to that. and have to look at every touch point they are. I use that three words as a simple way to do it. Uh, there's probably other ways to do it, but you try, three words are easily memorized so people can say, I'm doing it. And for example, when I said about disruption, when we first started the North Face, we were omni-channel, which at the time was heresy. We sold to our, our own stores, we sold to a catalog, and we sold wholesale. People said, you can't do that, you can't compete against that. Well, look around and you see every great brand now has their own store plus selling wholesale and doing everything out there. And we did, we used that in terms of the way we went out there. We would introduce new products, but we would also, uh, our social uh, goals that we had were quite innovative in how we approached it. In terms of environment, I knew that I believed in it and all the people that surrounded me, which we had in this, we're going to change this world environment at the North Face, believed in it. But we tried to avoid preaching to too many people for fear of pushback. But we came up with something which was a jujitsu, which was a, a flip of that. We came up with a negative award. It was called the Ice Nine Award. We took Ice Nine from Kurt Vonnegut's writing. He's an American humorist. And one of his books called The Cat's Cradle, the protagonist uh, had this great invention. The invention would change all the water in the world into ice. Now, of course, that was going to destroy the world, but it was such a great invention, he had to keep going until he, he accomplished it. So in the honor of Vonnegut and Cat's Cradle, we created what we called the Ice Nine Award. And each year, we would give it to the most environmentally destructive uh, individual or group. One year, we gave it to the U.S. Congress. We got all sorts of negative feedback saying, you don't know what you're doing. We said, yes, we very well know what we're doing. But again, that was disruptive in the approach that we took, and we applied it to the environment out there. And, and we would constantly do that. And, and we employed people no matter where they were from. We spoke 14 languages at all times when I ran the company. At the same time, we hired people, LBQ, you, you name it, any letter of the alphabet, as long as they were great, as long as they had passion, and as long as they had a passion to change the world. We figured that we could make something great out of that. 
Yeah, and it was very smart also uh, in, in terms of, you know, the, the leadership and team building and really building a, a global corporate brand. Let me quickly uh, pick you up on one thing, as you were saying about the brand. It really needs to be you and express more or less what you're all, all about in three words. You know, it's easy to memorize, but I think hard to come up with to really pinpoint what you're all about. But if you look at Oh, if I look at the brand, the North Face, and what it springs to my mind, to my mind, it springs great quality. I uh, have always something wonderful on me, not in terms of quality only, but also it looks good. So I saw the North Face really uh, migrating from something for sports to a fashion brand. And if I think about uh, the strategy of the North Face, including new materials, especially now talk about clothing. I mean, you were amongst the first ones to include Gore-Tex as a, as, as a material to integrate into your products. And now you're looking into biosensor clothing, which is, I don't know really how to imagine it, but in my mind, it's like, okay, I know it from animation where you have lots of sensors on your body and then you move and then, you know, a cartoon comes out at the end of it. So, so I wonder, whilst you do have the DNA and you do have that brand, the image to the outside world may have changed a little bit or may change in future. Well, hopefully it doesn't change from what the basic precepts are of quality, disruption, and triple bottom line. And if you do that, what we tried to do is find stories because storytelling parables is a way to be able to articulate that. So it's told to greater and greater markets out there. And then, of course, the further away from you the story is told, you know, when I tell it, it's, I'm a homie. When you tell it, it has some credibility. When the people you tell tell it to somebody else, now it becomes iconic. But it's the power of PR. <laughs> and, and so what we try to do is find stories that undermine that to stay with it. And so quality is an easy one and, and the warranty and how it lasts for a while, but it's also the quality of the relationships, the integrity that you have with people. I'm no longer at the North Face. It's sold. The VF Corporation does it, but I was very pleased what they did during the pandemic. They shut down all of their stores uh, as many people did, but they paid every single employee during that time. Yeah. And uh, with the belief that people were an important aspect of what they're doing. could be challenged. They're a public company. It's harder to do that. You know, people are saying, well, what are your quarterly earnings? But their integrity, the quality of their relationship with people was there. Those sorts of things come out. And, and I'm sure there's boundaries, there's guardrails on how far you can, can take that. But within apparel, making product for the outdoors, because it's really designed for that, even though a lot of it is urban wear. It is designed for people to use it, for it to last, for it to be able to be something which is unique and, uh, and facilitates whatever you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you mentioned earlier as well, you know, we need to get a team together that kind of understands the DNA of the brand. And that, that really takes me to the question, yes, you sold uh, the North Face, I think, in, back in 2000 to VF Corporation. Uh, they're listed on the NASDAQ, I think. Now, when, when you were really assembling what was, you know, not only the basis, but quite far into what is now a $13 billion business, how did you really, how did you affront leadership? What was, what was the way that you, what were the lessons you as a young entrepreneur yourself, you learned building your own company, trying to assemble the right team that really shares the vision, feels they have skin in the game? 
And that wraps up the first part of my conversation with Hap Klopp, the founder of the iconic The North Face brand. And if you do like the conversations I put out on Mentory TV, make sure to subscribe and hit the bell button so I can keep you informed about my newest releases. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.